0: good morning. It's uh, good to be uh, with you today via our live stream broadcast, although it goes without saying that uh, I'd much prefer uh, to be uh, gathered together in person, uh, as I'm sure many of you would as well. Hopefully next week uh, we'll be able to do so again. Um, Well, we come this morning uh, to the final week in our Revelation series. We come to Revelation chapter 22. So today we reach at last... Uh, the final words, uh, the final words not just of this book, uh, but of the whole Bible. And I hope you've uh, enjoyed this series. I have a great deal. I found it really challenging, but also uh, really encouraging and faith-building as we've made our way through uh, the chapters of this book of Revelation. And I hope for you, uh, I hope this series has, if it's done nothing else, it's showing you something of the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the wonder of who Jesus is, uh, the reality of His judgment over evil. And the power of the hope you have in the resurrection of Jesus for the new world to come. That's what I hope's come through. And I I know there's been a lot of uh, weird and and wonderful stuff that's uh, been there as well that we've seen. But I hope that the beauty of Jesus. uh, John says at the very start, the very opening words of the book, doesn't he? He says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's what John's been trying to write about. And I hope that's what you've picked up as we've been studying it together. Uh, whether you're relatively uh, new to the faith or whether you've been around a long time. Uh, But if you've been tracking with our series so far, you'll have noticed that that Revelation is almost dominated uh, by the number seven. Uh, In some ways, it seems as though the whole book has been made up of a run of sevens, uh, hasn't it? Just over and over and over again. So in week one, we met the sevenfold Jesus. And then we had the seven letters from Jesus to uh, the seven churches. And then we looked on as the seven seals were open. And then we heard the the sound of the seven trumpets, which were then followed by the seven visions followed again by the seven bulls and and so we've seen this repeated theme of seven uh, throughout even in the last couple of weeks as we've looked at the victory of jesus and his rescue and vindication of those who follow him uh, we were given if you like we're given it through a series of seven visions of a white horse of a supper of victory satan bound the rule of the martyrs a great judgment throne and then the new creation, which we saw last week. So there are a lot of sevens used throughout Revelation as we've gone through it. And in this final week, it's no different. We're, we're going to see the use of sevens again. And I think they're going to help draw our attention to really the way that God wants to direct our focus in the final chapter of the whole Bible. Which is to focus us once again on Jesus. The revelation of Jesus. So what we find here. In this final chapter is seven references to Jesus saying, Come, or I'm coming, or I'm coming soon. That language appears seven times in this chapter, and that focuses us on the return of Jesus. And then we find seven names for the Lord Jesus, which focuses us on the character of Jesus. And then we have what I'll call seven surprises, Or seven things that you wouldn't quite expect in the opening paragraph, which focuses on the gospel of Jesus. And so by using these sevens, I think John may be drawing our attention to the fact that he's going to return to what Jesus is like and what the gospel is as we round off this book by trying to make sense of this beautiful final vision of the Scriptures. So let me read it. Revelation chapter 22 beginning at verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They'll see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. The night will be no more. There will be no need, uh, the need, no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And He said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you mustn't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. He who testifies to these things says, "Surely I'm coming soon." Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. This is the word of God. In seven times in this quite short passage, we find the word "coming" or "coming soon." Right, the last words of Scripture focus us seven times on the return of Jesus. Actually, six times, as we'll see, and we'll explain why in a moment. But the words come and coming soon focus us on the return of Jesus. And in three cases, that comes through the words of Jesus himself. It is a promise from Jesus when he says, behold, I'm coming soon, verse 7. Behold, I'm coming soon, Verse 12, surely I'm coming soon. Verse 20. So three, so three of the appearances of the word come or coming come from the mouth of Jesus himself. I'm coming back and you must trust that I am, he's saying. And Christian hope involves that reassurance all the time. Jesus is coming back. So the world is not always going to look like it does now right? That's where Christian hope comes from. That's where Christian hope ultimately comes from because we know, we believe, we trust that the world is not always going to be as it is now because Jesus is coming back. So we don't believe, as many Eastern religions do, that the, that the world operates on an endless repetition of cycles, We just don't have that framework. Christians don't see history as shaped like a circle, just going round and round and round as many do. That's how the Stoics saw it in the ancient world. That's how many uh, people uh, today still would. A lot of New Age religions would uh, would be that way too, just a circle. Things go up and then things go down, like a sort of endless cycle of death and rebirth or reincarnation. So we don't have a circle shape of history, but we don't have an upward straight line view of history either. We don't believe in what we might call the gospel of endless progress, of human beings just getting better and better and better. We don't believe in that either. Because in Scripture, what happens is everything carries on going wrong under human sinfulness until it doesn't, until God steps in. Right? The World is irredeemably evil, but God brings a flood. Or Israel is enslaved in Egypt, crying out for help. Nothing happens, but God comes to, to rescue them into freedom. Judah gets exiled and there's no hope at all, but God intervenes and brings them back to the land. Jesus is dead, but God raises them up from the dead according to the Scriptures. It happens all the time. Sometimes the world looks like it's beyond repair. It may look like that to you today, but God. That's Christian hope, right? Whatever is going on in the world God steps in to act and to change it. And so the words of Jesus are such a comfort. Behold, I am coming soon. Surely I'm coming soon. The words of Jesus three times in this text. I'm coming. But God. So three of the appearances of the word coming come in that context. They're spoken by Jesus. Three of them then, are the cry of the church, right? So we've got three from Jesus, but three from the church. So the church and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, verse 17. Amen, come, Lord Jesus, verse 20. So it's like at the same time as you have the promise of Jesus, you also have the cry of the church. And the cry of the church that Jesus would come back to the earth to bring justice and healing and redemption is central to what the church has always prayed. In fact, it's so significant in early Christianity that it appears in the New Testament untranslated from the original language Jesus spoke, which is a language called Aramaic. In Aramaic, the way you would say, come our Lord, is the word maranatha. And that, and, and that word maranatha, appears in the New Testament without being translated into Greek, which is the normal language of the New Testament. It's a way of saying, come, our Lord. And it's such a heart cry of the church that they kept the original word for it. It's also at the heart of the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come. It doesn't just mean, Lord, we want the world now to look a little bit more like it will one day. It also means, Jesus, we're asking you to come back and bring your kingdom now. And so we have the the church's response to Jesus' promise. Jesus says, I'm coming soon. And the church says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's the dialogue taking place in this text. But it also needs to be noted that Jesus' words, I'm coming soon, were uttered by him some 2,000 years ago now. So what do we say to that? I mean, because even a, a few decades after Jesus' ascension, many people were laughing at the idea that Jesus uh, might come back. They, they sneered, what is this coming that is promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything has gone on since the beginning of creation. And and, and if that was what people thought after a few years after Jesus' ascension, what do we think to think now after almost two millennia or two millennia of delay? Well, the Apostle Peter elsewhere in the New Testament reminds us that people felt exactly the same way before Noah's flood dis- destroyed the earth. That is, there was considerable delay between God's promise of judgment and Noah's completion of the ark. And this made people ignore Noah's frequent warnings and assume that they were safe. But Peter points out that the del- Delay didn't make the flood any less sudden or certain since one day God simply gave the word and his judgment immediately fell. And in a similar way, he will give the word again and Jesus will return and it will be soon sudden and urgent in spite of the apparent long delay. And Peter also reminds us that with the day, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. And of course, 2,000 years seems like a very long time in the confines of earthly history and our experience. But listen, alongside the unending age described in chapter 21, it is a mere heartbeat in God's adventures with his people. In other words, two millennia or more of AD history will appear as light and momentary when it comes to the eternal glory which is to come. In the words of C.S. Lewis at the end of his Chronicles of Narnia, says this, "...all their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before." So we mustn't be confused by what may appear to be a delay in Jesus' promise that I'm coming soon. He will indeed come back suddenly and unexpectedly and imminently because this age is not the end of the story. It will be over very soon and he will turn the page for chapter one of the age to come. And even though non-Christians deny it and many Christians live as if it weren't true. We need to take it to heart and let it shape the way we we live. We need to to live with that great day in, in view. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. So three occurrences come from Jesus, I'm coming soon. Three come from the church, amen, come Lord Jesus, And then the seventh mention, the word come, is actually an invitation to other people who are not in the church. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. It's an invitation. Of course, it includes the church as well, but it's an invitation that seems to be extended beyond the people who are already believers uh, into the, the world at large. In other words, we don't wait for the return of Christ in a kind of narrow, uh, tribalistic way. Well, well, I'm all right, you know, Jesus is going to come back and then the world's going to be great for Christians, yeah. No, we actually wait for the coming of Jesus by extending an invitation to everybody else to come and participate in the water of life. We found it; it tastes great and we want others to taste it too. We want to extend the invitation to share in the joy of the return of Jesus to the whole world, to say, come and drink. It's free. So the last words of Scripture focus our attention on the return of Jesus. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, Believers will meet him in the air as he returns to earth as king. That's the thing that's sometimes called the rapture. Sometimes that's a word that bothers people and they get very overexcited about it. Actually, it just means that as Jesus returns, believers will be caught up in the air, raptured to meet him as he returns to earth. And then we will live on a new earth, a new creation with new bodies never to perish never to get sick again or exhausted or, or ever sin again and we will live on a new earth with him forever and that's the christian hope it's glorious amen come lord jesus right so the seventh focus us first on the return of jesus and in this chapter, they also focus on us on the character of Jesus. They focus on, us on what Jesus is like in himself. And we find seven names for Jesus in this sh- short passage, which is kind of extraordinary. It's kind of, of overdose, I would say, of names for Jesus in a, in a passage. But John wants to finish the book the same way he opened it. I want you to see Jesus unveiled, John is saying in this final chapter. And so we're given seven names for Jesus. Number one, the lamb. And we're used to the language of the lamb by now. It's a big theme in the book and and it's remarkable that God in human form is identified as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That God, the creator of the universe, has chosen to be known by, be symbolized by this incredibly weak, vulnerable animal in order to die a representative substitutionary death for the world. And if you trace the lamb through the Bible, you find the lamb theme is everywhere. But the power of the lamb increases as the Bible goes on. And so, in the book of Genesis, a lamb dies for a man. In the book of Exodus, a lamb dies for a family. In the book of Leviticus, a lamb dies for a whole nation. In the book of John, A lamb dies for the sins of the whole world. Behold, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The lion of Judah has become the lamb that was slain, who becomes the lamb at the center of the throne, who becomes the shepherd that leads his people to springs of living water. And that's one of the developments in Revelation, that the lion becomes a lamb and the lamb becomes a shepherd. And it's an amazing revelation of the character of Jesus. He will lead us to springs of living water and he will wipe away all tears from our eyes. So he's known as the lamb. He's also known by three names in succession. Verse 13, the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And all three of those names are obviously highlighting The way that Jesus bookends everything. He's the very start and he's the very end. And they highlight really the eternity of of Jesus. The the changelessness of Jesus. The fact that whatever happens and whoever appears to be in charge. Right? A a beast with seven heads and ten horns. A harlot riding a beast. A, A beast coming out of the land, coming out of the sea. A dragon. Nero. Donald Trump. Joe Biden, whoever it looks like's in charge. Jesus is always the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He always has been. He always will be. He is the King of kings, and nothing phases him. He's never limited. He's never caught off guard by anything that happens. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is the beginning and the end. The Alpha and the Omega. Nothing happens before him. Nothing will come after him. He is. The fifth name we find is the root and descendant of David. Verse 16, which is a really strange image if you think about it for a moment. To be the root of someone and to be the descendant of them. He's saying, I am the root of David and I am the shoot of David. I'm the descendant. It's a very odd image. I am the, the root and descendant. I come from David's line, but I'm also the one from whom David's line comes. I, I come from the kings of Israel, but the kings of Israel come from me. It, it's an amazing claim to his eternity, his divinity, even the origin, uh, even of Israel itself is in the person of Jesus. The sixth name you find is the bright and morning star. Now, The morning star is the brightest star out there. uh, Mostly because it's much nearer than any real star. Because the morning star isn't a star, it's Venus, it's it's a planet. So it's much, much nearer, a million times nearer than any real star. And as you reflect on that, you think, wow, okay, so Jesus... Like the morning star, he's the one who marks the beginning of the day. The one whose arrival marks the dawn of a new age. The day is coming, the night is over. Jesus rises and in his resurrection and his ascension, he proclaims the glorious news that the darkness is defeated and that it's a new day. So Jesus is the morning star in that sense. He's also the morning star in the sense that he is far closer to me. And far brighter to look at than anything or anyone else. Jesus is the bright and morning star because he comes closer, shines brighter. And he heralds the arrival of a new day. And then the seventh name is simply the Lord Jesus. The Master, the Sovereign, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. And and so you have this whole rich range of names for Jesus in this passage. And again, John is... It's as if he's saying, I I don't want you to lose sight with your beasts and your harlots and your timelines of what's going to happen next. Please don't lose sight of the glory of the Lord Jesus in this book. I want you to see him again and again. Look at how rich and glorious he is. Don't forget his character and don't forget his return. And then finally, don't forget his gospel. And that's how I'd put it because the first paragraph of this chapter has seven surprises in it, and what I mean by that is, seven times in that first paragraph, we should we should read something where we're saying, huh, there's 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 one of those," and I would expect that there uh, to be I expect that there would be several. Right? There are seven moments in the first paragraph, verses 1 to 5, where you read something and you think, I would expect there to be two, three, four, five or more of that thing, and there's actually only one. Why is that? And the first one is that there's one river where you might have expected four. Right In the Garden of Eden, there are four rivers. Whereas now in the new creation, there's only one. The river flows from the throne, bright as crystal. It's as if someone has, has punched a hole in the crystal sea that surrounds the flo- throne and all the water's flowing out into the, 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 uh, into the world to make it new. And it's flowing through the streets of the city. There's one river, not four like in Eden, just one life-giving river. There's one throne for God and the Lamb where we might have expected two, or even three for the Holy Spirit as well. God, the Lamb, and the Holy Spirit. That's how uh, you might think it would work, but it's not. There's one throne for the Lamb, God and the Lamb. Look at verse 3. The throne, singular, of God and of the, uh, of the Lamb, plural. The Lamb has been exalted and such to receive and to share the divine throne. God, God, God rules the world in and through the person of the Lamb. So there's one throne where you might expect two. There's one city where up until now you might have expected two or even more. And in fact, throughout the Bible, you get these uh, contrasts between cities. You, you get pairs of cities over and over again. The city of man and the city of God. Uh, Nimrod's Babel and, and Abraham's hope for the future city, Babylon and Jerusalem. It's a tale of two cities. It happens over and over and over again. And we've seen it in this book as we've, as we've gone through it. But now there's only one city. The other city has been thrown down, never to be found again. The only city that remains is the city of God, the new Jerusalem, the bridal city that we looked at last week. So there's one river, one throne, one city. There is one face. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. And that should raise the question, whose face? Whose face am I going to see, God's or the Lamb's? And again, the answer is the face of God in the face of the Lamb. Right? This is what Paul was talking about in that wonderful passage where he said, uh, the, the, the God who said, let, their, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That the face of God is the face of Jesus. That's how we know what God is like. And, we, and we've been waiting for that as long as we can remember to be able to look at God face to face and on that day we will. It will be the face of God in the face of the Lamb. There's one face. There's one name. Or again, we might expect two or even three and his name will be on their foreheads. You might say, well, is it God or the, or the Lamb or is it the Spirit in there? Uh, but again, one divine name even though three divine persons. There is one light where we might expect any number of other kinds of lights to, to be available, but you don't need a lamp or a fire or a sun. There's no rival source of illumination in the city. You don't need any. The, the glory of the Lamb is so great that there is absolutely no need for any other source of light there. And there'll be no darkness or night either There'll be no shadow in the sense that there's no place that the light of God is not seen and felt. Again, don't take this too literally as if, if it's going to be some sort of bright daylight the whole time. That's not really the issue. The issue is, is that you're never going to get what the Bible means by dark ever coming again. One of the most chilling lines in the Bible to me is when Je- uh, Judas leaves the Lord's Supper having just betrayed Jesus. And John writes this terrible sentence in four words, and it was night. There's this horrible darkness to that sentence. And and, and John is saying, that's never ever going to happen again. None of the the things that happened in the night, the things that people hide or conceal, never it's never going to happen again because the light shines in the darkness and the darkness hasn't overcome it. There is one light. And then finally, there is one tree where there were previously two. Remember back in the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But no longer is the option to sin even there. There, there won't even be the possibility for redeemed people of going, actually, yes, I think I will take the fruit from the wrong tree. That will have gone, and there will now only be the tree of life which we, from which we can come and eat as much as we want anytime. There will only be good. There will only be life. There will be nothing else to choose. We will be so free that we won't be able to choose bad. We will only be able to choose good. But notice the image, because... It's a strange one. On either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. One tree on either side of the river. It doesn't seem to make sense, does it? You can't have a tree that's on either side of the river. Surely it's either on this side you know, draping over or it's on, on that side. But it can't be one tree on either side of the river. In Ezekiel's vision that this is drawn from, there are 12. And you go, I, I get that, six on, one, you know, on this side and six on this side. But I can't get my head around how there's one tree on either side of the river. That doesn't make any sense. It's as if there's only one tree, but it's everywhere. It's as if all trees have been incorporated into the one tree, the, the tree on which the Prince of Glory dies, the tree that produces over and over and over again fresh fruit every month, the tree whose leaves are are for the healing of the nations, the tree to which you can come at any point in your life to find the sweetness of the fruit of God, the blessing and favor of God, and healing for your transgressions, for your sicknesses, for all your diseases. You can come to the tree and find life. The whole of the new creation in that sense will be dominated by the tree, the cross of Christ. You know, what the world needs more than anything in our day and any day is the revelation of Jesus. And what the church needs more than anything in our day and in any day is the revelation of Jesus. And that's why John has pointed us again and again in this amazing book. He's pointed us to the revelation of Jesus Christ. He keeps saying, Please look, please find yourself confronted with the unveiled reality of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Look at him. Look at him. See him. Experience his gospel and recognize that he's coming back. And faced with that vision, we get invited, we get summoned then to worship and obedience and prayer. I mean, the 24 elders see God as he he really is, seated on the throne in complete control over the events of history, and it causes them to worship and to cast down their crowns at his feet. And friends, the book of Revelation has helped us to see what they see, and if we have at all grasped its message, we will do the same. We've, we've, We've seen that God is on his throne That God is in control. That God will prevail. And it is this revelation of Jesus Christ that changes everything. We're told, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. Because the time is near. And so I'd like to close out this series by reading the last words of the Bible. Really, as a declaration to the truth of Scripture and to the truth of this book. We've, through these weeks, we've ensured that we've read out the entirety um, of the book of Revelation, all 22 chapters, but we want to close uh, this series uh, hearing again those final verses, beginning at verse 16 of chapter 22. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of this book, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the word revealed and the opportunity we have had to to study it and look at it together. And We want to be caught up afresh with the revelation of the Lord Jesus as he is revealed. We want it to cause us, like the 24 elders, to bow down and worship as we see the one who is like a son of man whose hair is pure like white wool, whose eyes are like a flame of fire, the one before whom we come whose feet are like burnished bronze, whose voice is like the the thunder of many waters, his right hand holding the seven stars, and a mouth that is like a sharp two-edged sword, and a face that is shining in full strength. There's the beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the one who rules over history. He rules over AD history and he rules also over the history of our own lives. And so we not only desire and need to worship you, but may we increasingly be people of faith who can trust you in the story of our own lives. In the struggles and the challenges, when it feels like the world is winning, when the enemy is winning, it feels like we are in the losing camp, remind us again that Christ is victor. And because Christ is victor, those of us who are united with him are victorious too. We praise his name. We bless his name. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.